and most importantly, welcome to DirtOnDirt.com. This is the Rigsby Report podcast for New Year's Week 2019. 2020? What, what do I call this technically? I'm recording this on December 30th, so is it New Year's Eve week 2019 or New Year's week 2020? I don't know. It's almost New Year's Eve. How about that? Tomorrow it's New Year's Eve. It is Rigsby Report episode two, and you know I can kind of downplay the first one that we recorded a couple of weeks ago with Jeff Purvis. But I decided I'm not going to do that. I don't know that I've ever gotten stopped more in my Dirt on Dirt 13-year history, 13-season, 12-year history, as I did after the first podcast at PRI and at Gateway. People really seem to like it. The views and the download numbers and the listen numbers really reflected that. Thousands and thousands of downloads and listens. So... I don't know, it, it just a little extra pep in my step, right? It gives me hope that this is something people wanted. And I wasn't just crazy that I, you know, how like sometimes things happen in politics and society and like things start to boil over and somebody will write something or come out with something. And they're like, yeah, that's kind of how I was feeling at the time. I don't know, maybe this is pie in the sky and maybe I'm patting myself on the back too much. That's not really what I'm trying to do, but like, I think maybe a lot of what I'm thinking and feeling in that first podcast was reflected with what dirt late model fans and people across the country were thinking and feeling. Um, and that's, that was exciting to hear from so many people that said more of that. We want more of that. We need more of that. And that made me feel really good. It made me feel good that all of these thoughts that I have built up in my 37 years around this sport and my 12 years and 13 seasons covering it, I do kind of know what I'm talking about. I do know what I'm talking about. And that people are going to want to hear it, and people are going to want to listen to it, and that was fleshed out. Uh, having Jeff Purvis doesn't hurt, also, right? <laughs> Let's be honest. Having that guy on the air certainly didn't help my my uh, didn't hurt, help my case, or didn't hurt my case, I should say. Uh, I think the same goes for today's guest that we're going to get to in a little bit, Doug Bland, the guy who I, I arguably could be or should be in the Dirt Late Model Hall of Fame, despite his only two or three years in and around Dirt Late Model Racing. I joke with him that he is the Big Bang Theory for modern Dirt Late Model Racing. So much of what is going on right now can be directly tied back to Doug Bland. And I don't want this to be just a me gushing over Doug Bland session. I'm, I'm sure there's somebody out there that will tell me what Doug Bland did was wrong, but from the seat I sat in and interviewing him today... I don't know. I think that the guy had a lot of tremendous ideas, was very ahead of his time, and uh, maybe he didn't handle everything perfectly. Maybe he bit off too much, uh, but I've always wanted to interview him, and uh, we'll have Doug Bland on later for a good 35 to 40-minute interview about how he shaped dirt late model racing, especially modern dirt late model racing from 2004 on was very much shaped by what Doug Bland did in 03, 04, and 05. A couple of things I wanted to get to before we get to Doug you know, he, I don't know that I've ever, as much as people liked the first podcast, I don't know that I've ever got as much heat as I did. I said in the first Rigsby report that there would be an announcement at the PRI trade show that was one of the biggest announcements in the last decade of dirt late model racing. And by the way, as what did Tyler Carpenter say at Gateway? Beat the buttons out there, keyboard warriors. 
I want you to think about this. What I said was it will be one of the biggest announcements in the last 10 years of dirt late model racing. I was referring to the Scott Bloomquist, Chris Madden, Dryden partnership and that they were going to run the world of outlaws. The way that people twisted my words were hilarious that, you know, this is the biggest announcement ever in dirt late model racing. This is the biggest announcement in the last 10 years. This is the, etc. I didn't say any of that. I said, it's one of the 10 biggest things in the last 10 years to happen in dirt late model racing. Let me tell you where I was right about it and where I was wrong about it. In my opinion, Scott Bloomquist, no matter what you say, to me, he still is literally the only real ticket seller in all of dirt late model racing. The only guy that truly moves the needle. I think JD's getting there and some other Brandon's getting there, but Scott is polarizing as hell. Scott is teaming up with Chris Madden. It's a two-car team. They're, you know, Scott has run Lucas Oil forever, maybe not the entire season, but forever, an oil company. He's leaving a Lucas Oil tour for the World of Outlaws tour. Uh, they get along, but they're primary rival, right? The Outlaws and Lucas, primary rivals. He's leaving one tour sponsored by, sponsored by an oil company for another tour because of an oil sponsorship with Chris Madden, who was arguably the hottest driver in the country outside of Brandon Shepard last year. So where I was right about that is when I say it in my head, I still think it's a big deal. Where I was wrong about it is, I think that I observe dirt late model racing on such a micro level. Like, I obsess over dirt late model racing. I think that it's a bigger deal to me than maybe it was General Bob Smith dude in West Virginia, Wisconsin, Iowa, Tennessee. It might have been a bigger deal to me than it was the random dirt late model fan. I still think, I will stand by, I still think it's one of the biggest 10 announcements of the last decade in our sport. Um, that was all I was claiming. Uh, but yeah, maybe I observe late model racing on such a close level that it's a bigger deal to me because I get all the the series power struggles and the oil sponsorships and the nuance of all that. Like maybe it's bigger to me because of that, but I still stand by what I said. But by the way, if you're if you're gonna if you're gonna come at me and throw me shade on the internet, get the quote right. One of the biggest ten announcements of the last decade. That's all I said. I didn't go nuts about it. That's all I said. So if you're gonna if you're gonna hook me and throw me shade, get that right. Uh, other things from PRI, pretty quiet overall. People just walking around saying how healthy the sport is in general. Uh, that was interesting to me though that they tied a lot to politics. Who is elected? Who isn't elected? This better happen. That better happen. We all agree the economy's roaring and everything's great. But if X Y Z doesn't happen, I don't know the future of the sport. Um, I don't know. Let's just try to do our own thing and, and not tie ourselves to any one thing or the other. Uh, but everybody seemed very happy and content at PRI. You don't often get that. Racing people are by nature angry and resentful. Uh, they all start to hate racing. The, the mood around PRI was good, man. It was, it was, everybody thought, you know, I brought our CEO, Mark Floriani from Flow Sports for his first PRI, and he was kind of blown away at the scope and scale of late model racing. So I thought that that was very cool, too. So between the Bloomquist Madden thing and that at PRI, everybody's just in a good mood this year at PRI. Uh, I thought those were interesting things. Uh, Gateway. I want to hit some Gateway Dirt Nationals. I've talked to Cody Summers since the event, uh, and I don't know, and I've talked to all my guys, too, DJ, Ben, everybody. I, I want to say this the right way. Something happened this year. And what do you mean by that, Rigsby? Something happened. And I think every event has a glass ceiling or a ceiling that they will bump up against. And the truly great events are able to break through it and continue on and grow. The North-South 100 did that about six or seven years ago. Is a combination of a lot of what Josh did, paying the 50000 I think our coverage there, a lot of other stuff happened. The North-South shot through that and became a top five event in the country. 
Something happened at Gateway this year where it shot through its glass ceiling, in my opinion. Uh, And listen, I said in the first podcast, events can't run all night, they can't run late, etc., etc. Cody and Jacob know they've got to fix that. This thing cannot keep going until 2 o'clock in the morning. That has got to be addressed for it to reach its maximum potential. Nobody wants to be there till 1.30 in the morning. We have to fix that. I agree. The racetrack was too rough. We all agree on that. I will give them a slight pass on it going late. You can't go till 1.30. The way you have to take cars on and off the track and et cetera, et cetera, it's not exactly like another place. But either way, I can't say one week we can't go late and then the next week say that can't happen because we have to fix that. But something happened in Gateway this year where you know Tyler Carpenter literally became a national star that night. And I don't think I'm overstating that. What he did in St. Louis that weekend will never be forgotten for the rest of his career. And that's the thing I always say about Gateway that I've always tried to explain to people. I know the track is small. I know the dirt is rough. I know it's hard. I know all of that. But there is something about that place and the moments you get in the dome in December, it's never going to be the World 100. But it exists on this level that you can't really describe. It's literally its own stratosphere. The time of year matters right before Christmas. Everyone's home. Everyone's watching. All of those things matter. And how could you not watch what happened on Saturday night? And no, as Jonathan Davenport said, it's not traditional dirt late model racing, but it's exciting as hell. It was arguably the most exciting moment of the year, what Tyler Carpenter and Brandon Shepard did on Saturday night. I mean, Dave Despain is tweeting about it. NASCAR on NBC on Facebook is talking about Gateway. There's this influx of love about dirt track racing in a time of year that you would never get it. We can talk about the season being too long later, but something happened this year where this event broke through the glass ceiling. I didn't know that it had a ton of room to grow, but now I do. I think it's going to be bigger and better next year because of what happened this year. Just something happened in that building in December that's hard to describe. And then you have this thing with Tyler Carpenter's niece with the insurance turn, you know, this 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 terrible health issue this young, young child has. The insurance turns her down. She The racing community raises $100,000 for her in a week. And then because of that attention, I believe the insurance ends up approving it and they're going to still raise the $100,000. They're going to go to a charitable cause. I think all those things happened because of the Gateway Dirt Nationals, and the attention the insurance company, to me, had no choice. No choice but to approve this for all the heat and attention they were getting. You're not going to find that at a lot of other dirt track events. Again, I'm going to say it again. Something happened in, inside the building this year. Something. Something happened. From Carpenter to Kyle Larson, again, being this generational Gordon Foyt Stewart talent. He's the true renaissance man of our sport. Something happened, guys. It just is, there's something that cooked inside Gateway this year that's hard to describe, but it's easy to see uh, if you got it. Last couple things before Doug Bland. Uh, The season starts this week. (laughs) It's December 30th, and the, the, the World of Outlaw Points season starts this week. I'm laughing because it's it's kind of hilarious, right? I mean, it's one thing when we were going to Arizona, which Kovac and I have referred to very affectionately as the spring training of dirt late model racing, the Wild West shootout. There's days off out there. There's no points. There's no pressure. It's a perfect way to sort of ease into the season before speed weeks. And now just 13 days after this monumental moment in the Dome, we are points racing in New Mexico. Shepard, Bloomquist, Madden, Weiss, all these guys 
Oh, by the way, Christmas and New Year's was in between, so there's really not been any downtime at all. It's just, it's funny to me. I don't know why. I just think it's funny. I, I, it's cliche talk, and I know it gets old, but this is kind of wild. I mean, we, we've joked about no offseason before, but this really was the year that the offseason officially died. We put the gun to the head of the offseason in Dirt Late Model Racing, and we pulled the trigger in 2019 and into 2020. This was it. We killed it forever. We are points racing in New Mexico this week for the world of outlaws good field shaping up too they got a good field and it can be freezing cold out there this time of year looks like it's going to be in the upper 50s so they caught a break with weather which is good for for uh for royal and all those guys out there but i did have somebody say to me what does does dirt late model racing ever puke this back up we we keep forcing racing down its throat do we ever puke it back up there's no longer any distinguishing between the off season and the other season they all just sort of run together does that matter or not i don't know uh, I've, I've gone on and on about that in a ton of video casts before. So, uh, you know, I, I joke that I'm a huge Chicago Bears fan. Their season ended to the Vikings yesterday. Eight and eight. All right. We rallied. Eight and eight, Bears. Oh, Jesus. <sighs> We're eight and eight. Um, we have to wait eight and a half months to watch a Chicago Bears football game. And part of the reason the NFL is the powerhouse that it is is because you got to wait so long. You you salivate for the NFL. You crave the NFL just because you got to wait so long for it. Football, football. We're not going to have that anymore in our sport. The NASCAR season's too long. I've said it forever. Is ours officially too long now that we've killed it? Um, we're going to find out. A, a few tiny notes uh, about our sport being healthy, some stuff we picked up on at PRI. Buzzy Adams moves to late models. That's big news in Wasota country. And Joe Provenzano moving to late model racing also. Guys shifting into late model racing. That matters, right? I think that's, that's something to keep an eye on that our sport might be help, healthy. With that, how about this? Trailway Speedway in Pennsylvania. First late model race ever they're hosting. And Dallas County Speedway in Missouri. Our friend Trenton Berry involved in this. First event for late models there in 20 years. And on top of that... Joe Kaziski buys the IMCA Deary Brothers Summer Series. Uh, Joe and the gang always putting their money where their mouth is. We love the Kaziskis. I just thought those were three or four anecdotes there between Buzzy and Joe, Trailway and Trailway in Dallas County, and the Kaziskis. Those things all matter, right? Like, suddenly, this is kind of cool that these guys are getting into racing. These guys are hosting late model races for the first time, and the Kaziskis care so much about late model racing, they're going to buy a tour and consolidate it basically with the Malvern Tour. Um, that stuff all matters. And I just, little anecdotes as we sit here next December recording the Rigsby Report that I want to look back on and, and see how those things flush out. Let's get to it now. Doug Bland. Joining me on the Integra Shocks and Springs Hotline is someone who I have always wanted to interview and given the place our sport is in right now, I honestly can't think of a better time to do it. But first, I want to do a little setup. It is 2019, almost 2020, and I forget that some people might not know who Doug Bland is. So I'm going to explain that before we get him on the phone here. Doug had a racing background. He was born in Ottawa, Illinois, and his home tracks were Grundy County and the asphalt side and LaSalle Speedway, the dirt track we all know, as a kid. His father raced, but he really got his first racing job or notable racing job was at Homestead, the NASCAR track, in California, as a marketing guru, right? He, he was kind of a young, hot marketing guru in this sport working at Homestead in California. 
Homestead sold around 99-2000, and Bland became a partner in the Joplin 66 Speedway in Missouri, the dirt track in Joplin. Of course, at that time, Havitampa was the hot tour. And I say all the time how great Havitampa was. They were coming through and raced at Joplin, and Doug started working with Havitampa a little bit. He had a marketing agency. They eventually took over for the tour and started to bring some sponsors on. He also signed a TV package with Speed at the time, which, trust me, as an 18-year-old kid was a huge deal to me. Eventually, Doug would buy the series all together, the Habitampa series, the UDTRA series, back in 2003 from the Swims family. And keep in mind, he's only 33 years old at this point, and he's really making a name for himself in dirt late model racing. But he really wanted full control to sort of steer the direction that he thought things needed to go. The 2003 season was his first, and it went well. And after 2003 is really where the Doug Bland story takes flight. Before the 2004 season, he makes a series of big announcements. Stacker 2 would become the title sponsor, and it was a 10-year sponsorship at the time. Uh, it made the TV package even stronger. He added the extreme regional events, and by the way, extreme is back now, uh, after you know, Doug eventually sold, and then they shuttered the series, and now the World of Outlaws are using the name extreme again. For those of you that don't know, Doug started it. It was the old Renegades Tour, and he wanted weekly events and those regional events to feed into the national tour, and the big one that shook late model racing to its very core was when between 03 and 04, he inked a, a lucrative tire deal with Goodyear that really, you know, put Hoosier on the outside looking in as far as his series because Goodyear was going to be the exclusive tire of the Extreme Series, the Stacker Extreme Series at the time. He wanted something really simple. He wanted three compounds soft, medium, and hard, and he wanted those regional and local tours to follow it. So when the national tour came to town, everyone would be on three compounds of tires, three or four compounds, and it would be super easy. But when you sign with Goodyear, the power players of the sport, the Scott Bloomquist, the Billy Moyers, you know, the Rocket House Car teams, who at the time had great Hoosier tire deals, obviously they might have a little problem with it. And they say, no, this isn't exactly, exactly going to happen. So those power players banded together within Boundless Motorsports, which would eventually become World Racing Group as we know it today, and they formed the original Dirty Dozen to be a direct competitor of Extreme in 2004. So in 2004, you have Doug's Tour on Goodyear's, you have Boundless Motorsports, the Dirty Dozen, the original World of Outlaws, head-to-head -head in 2004. Not only that, the next year, Boundless would actually buy Doug Bland out and absorb extreme. So the year after that, Richie Lewis, Rick Schwally, and all of the guys that had worked for Doug Bland at one point, they link up with Lucas Oil, who had sponsored Doug's tour. They're, of course, friends with the Swims family. And they start the Lucas Oil Late Model Dirt Series tour in 2004, 2005. Basically, 2005 started that tour. And from 2005 on, away we go, basically, with two national dirt late model tours. All of it basically because Doug decided to go with Goodyear in 2004. Boundless and the Outlaws were formed and the Dirty Dozen to go head to head. The year later, Lucas Oil was formed. So these other guys like Richie and Rick wanted to start their own thing basically with Forrest Lucas. And I think I've set the table as best I can because this thing gets really interesting from this point on and forever shaped the history of dirt late model racing. 
Doug, I'll start with you the same way that I started with Jeff Purvis a week ago. I want the where are you now, what are you doing now? Give us the where are they now uh, for, for Doug Bland. What exactly is going on in the <laughs> life of Doug Bland as we sit here almost 2020? I'm sitting here in Bettendorf, Iowa um, at our corporate headquarters for the uh, Quad City Steam Wheelers uh, professional indoor football league team. We're part of the indoor football league uh, with teams like the Arizona Rattlers, the Iowa Barnstormers the Green Bay Blizzard, just to name a few. So uh, we uh in our third season um, in the IFL, so we're pretty pumped about it, and that's that's what I do now. How did you get with their, the, the indoor football stuff? Like, how did, how did that matriculate? How did that happen? Growing up, uh, one of my college and high school teammates, um, football teammates, played uh, for the Iowa Barnstormers, and I was living in Southern California at the time when I was working for Penske, and... Um, They'd come out and play. The Barnstormers would play the Anaheim Piranhas every year. So <laughs> I'd always go to the games and hang out with my buddy, uh, Ron Moran, who played for them. And just kind of got a love for the game. And, um, you know, the opportunity came to uh, to own a team uh, about five years ago in, in Dallas. And that's, that's when I jumped in. How would you say, we're going to get much more into the racing stuff, compare racing to indoor football, to arena football. <laughs> How similar are the two industries? And have you been able to take something from, from one thing and apply it to the other? It's very similar from the standpoint of, um, you know, the business models. You, you have... You know, sponsorship revenue, you have ticket revenue, um, and you have athletes. So um, you have to manage the athletes. You have to manage uh, your brand. You have to build a fan base, and you have to put a great product on the field here versus, you know, a great product on the racetrack. So very similar type of things. Um, you, you run it very similar, uh, and obviously that's, that was my background. Uh, my whole career, so it, it just kind of dovetailed into it. It's just a different form of entertainment. Instead of watching cars going around in circles, we're watching, <laughs> you know, Division One uh, college football players that are trying to get to the NFL. Uh, you know, show their skills. We've kind of caught up on where you are now, so it's it's time to jump back. And there's really nowhere else to go but that 2004 season. There's more before that that I covered in the open, but. I think the book of Doug Bland, as I'm calling it, uh, 2004 is the year when the entire sport of dirt late model racing changed forever. You signed with Goodyear. And again, I do a lot of research for these for these interviews, and, and you and I have talked a little bit via Facebook Instant Messenger. So if I'm wrong on anything, Doug, correct me here. But 2004, you signed with Goodyear. The Scott Bloomquist of the world, the Mark Richards of the world, all of these super influential people in our sport, uh, they get upset, basically. Uh, they Hoosier connections, right? Hoosiers run deep in dirt track racing forever. They form up with Boundless. They start the Dirty Dozen. The next year, all of the guys that sort of worked for you at Extreme, Richie Lewis, Rick Schwally, you know, Lucas was a sponsor of yours at Extreme. They kind of link up with Lucas, and the Lucas Oil Series is formed. All of this happens within 12 months. Literally, modern-day dirt late model racing as we know it all starts from the moment with you deciding to go with Goodyear, basically. Did you have any idea at the time that you were, in essence, the Big Bang Theory <laughs> for modern dirt late model racing? That decision would literally shape the future of the sport forever. Did you know at that time that that was going to happen? Well, they always say that uh, people who disrupt things um, make things change and make them better. So hopefully that's that's kind of what my maybe my legacy would be. but. If you're going to be successful, you have to disrupt a few things. Um, it didn't happen because of that. It happened because 
um, there was just a couple people that were trying to run a whole entire industry and they were doing things not for the future growth of the industry. They were doing it because they didn't want their gravy train to go away. So, you know, I went to who's your first, I'll be the first to admit, I went to them first and said, Hey, let's limit the number of tires that we, that we can use in this series. We're the only national touring series that has the, you know, the clout to make this happen. And they just didn't want to do it. And, um, you know, so Goodyear had been a sponsor of UDTRA along with um, uh, American Racer. So there was three tire sponsors. Obviously, Hoosier was the only one that sold a lot of tires. But um, so they refused to do it. They basically said, no, we're not going to do this. Um, so I went to Goodyear. Um, Larry Robinson was the gentleman that worked for Goodyear. And he brought me up to uh, Akron and met with the uh, executives, which I knew Greg Stucker from my days at Penske. Um, so I knew some of the executives at Goodyear already. So we went up there and they said, we'd absolutely love to design a line of dirt late model tires in three different compounds. And the reason we wanted to do that was because, you know, I had had this, been involved with the series for three years. So I had seen what happens when you go into these markets, you've got your traveling 12 to 15 guys, um, you know, that was already set up to do this traveling thing. But the whole concept of this was the nation's top guys would come into your local town and compete against the local stars from that area. Well, the local stars quit racing because they, they knew they couldn't be competitive having to have so many tires mounted, siped, grooved. You know, they'd had to have so many different combinations to be competitive. They just quit doing it. So the car counts just kept dropping lower and lower and lower. And so we decided that that's what really needed to take place, um, you know. And everybody was on board, even they can tell you that they weren't, but Bloomquist was on board, Richards was on board, until they found out that they weren't going to get, you know, cheated up tires. So then it, then it all changed. So I guess one thing I didn't know there, so Goodyear was actually a sponsor for UDTRA Extreme. I didn't know that. They were already a sponsor. So that's how you had the relationship with Goodyear. Yeah, they had been a sponsor back in the Have a Tampa days. Okay. They, they, yeah, they were, they were sponsored. Granted, they did it because they just wanted to be involved. They didn't. They didn't sell very many tires. American Eraser had some tires. There was a couple drivers that would drive, that would race on their tires, like uh, Ray Cook and a couple other guys would dabble around with them. But, uh, you know, they didn't have a, a huge penetration in the marketplace. And so Goodyear at this point, you actually went to Hoosier first. How close were you to a deal with Hoosier? Because I think Kevin Kovac wrote a story that said there was, you were close with them. Did it ever get, it was, was it almost Hoosier or no? Yeah, no, I, I remember I remember them sitting in my motorhome at the at the Dixie shootout um the year that that I told them, "Look, this is what I want to do." And they said, "Well, that's not the direction we want to go in." And you know, because obviously at the time they had 13 different compounds of tires. And and guys that, you know, the Bloomquist and the guys of the world would have a set of tires for qualifying, they'd have a set of tires for the heat race, they'd have a set of tires for the feature. And they'd have them all sitting across in there. If you walk in their trailer, it's just mounted up, just lined up across their, the back of their trailer. And, you know, a local guy just doesn't have an ice cube's chance in hell to be competitive. So, I mean, we saw that as a, as a stumbling point for the sport to really get to the next level. And, and having something on the, on the lines of having a competitive tire that, that you could run in. You know, we ran in 17 different states at the time. So, you know, there's all kinds of different clays and dirts that we run on. So we had a soft, a medium, a hard tire that, that would be uh, effective in all these different 
types of climates and all these different types of, um, you know, dirt that you'd be across. So we had everything in place. It's just a matter of, you know, they didn't want to do it because they sold too many tires to open late mile competition. And I want to circle back on something. You said they didn't like it, some of the drivers, because of the cheated up tires. Now, these are yours, your words here, not mine. What do you mean by that? Like, what exactly, what would be the, the reason for them not wanting that? What do you mean by cheated up tires? So, I mean, this, you can ask anybody, this is what happens. I mean, they, if they wanted to develop a new tire, they would say, Hey, you know, who's your sponsor? So many tires are so many racers. And they would say, Hey, we want to go test these tires. Uh, Mark Richards was one of the people who tested a lot of them. They go to his little track that he had in, in Virginia or West Virginia. They'd go, they'd test all day long on these different tires. And at the end of the test, they'd say, Oh, you could, you guys can keep those. Well, those are tires that nobody else in America has. So the next race they would go to, these guys would have these tires that, you know, were test tires or whatever they were, and they'd kick everybody's butt. So, I mean, it was, it's, this stuff really happened. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up, but, you know, we, for, for something to be on a level playing field, it just need, didn't need to happen that way. So, um, you know, there are certain, certain people who got, you know, tires, maybe some of them were stamped differently. You know, it just, you know. I'm sure you haven't heard of, you've heard this before, so it's not like <laughs> something that was, you know, never happened. You make the decision to go to Goodyear, and it's prior to the 2004 season. So it would have been between that October meeting with Hoosier at the Dixie Shootout and 2004, right? Somewhere in that October to February window is when you make the decision to go with Goodyear. Is that correct? We actually made it um, in November at the. We actually made an announcement um, at the the NASCAR uh, season finale in Homestead. Okay. I, I used to be, the, I was the marketing director at Homestead before I got into this. So we, knowing that we made the, we made the announcement of the Stacker two sponsorship, as well as the Goodyear affiliation there at Homestead in front of all the media and everything. So um, that gave us a lot of, uh, you know, publicity and, and, a big footprint. So you're in November, you make the decision, we're going, and I, listen, I'm a dirt late model kid to the bone. I remember it very vividly. It was a big deal. But did you kind of think to yourself when this happened, hey man, Hoosier is going to do something. These drivers are going to do something. Did you have some idea that the entire boundless motorsports thing, what would become World Racing Group, did you have any idea that something was about to go down? And how, how did you find out about it at first? And how did it make you feel? In December, we were at the um, the racers promoters meeting in Reno, Nevada, and you know a couple people came up to me and goes, "Hey, I think they're, I think they're trying to put something uh, uh, together to to go head to head against you." And I remember Richie Lewis calling me and saying, "Hey, you th- if you think Bloomquist is your buddy, you think again because um, I, he's he's trying to go against you with Hoosier and all this kind of stuff." So. Um, I remember that conversation vividly and I'm like, Oh no, no. He told me he's on board with this deal. And then sure enough, you know, obviously they were backdoor meeting here trying to put something together to, you know, go head to head against extreme. When you found out, were you like, what was your first reaction, Doug? Were you like, Holy shit, this could wreck what I'm trying to do. I now have a direct competitor in this space, which with would become the arguably the strongest dirt late model roster ever that original dirty dozen. I mean, you had to be nervous, worried. What was the thoughts in December, January that year? Yeah, it was, I mean, obviously it wasn't the ideal situation, but we had a really good lineup of drivers as well. I mean, um, but having them all under one umbrella would have really taken this thing to the next level, but it just showed you how much they had to lose that Hoosier did not want to lose that. 
that gravy train. I mean, they were going to the extent of, I mean, what I was asking for sponsorship was nothing compared to what they spent to, to assemble against me. So that proved right there how much money they were making off dirt late model racers by selling 13 different compounds of tires. I can't remember the driver who told me, but they still say to this day, I think I know who it was, but I don't want to quote him on it, but it was an upper Midwest guy. It still says to this day, the best racing they ever did was that East Bay that year with, with the Goodyear tires. Like you said, you guys had 90 cars in the first year in 04 that when you went to speed weeks, the racing was unbelievably good. You know, in your dream of only three compounds of tires, it was working soft, middle, hard. What do you remember most about that season on Goodyear tires in 2004? If I just ask you that question, what do you remember most about the actual racing and the execution of going to Goodyear? It, it actually went over better than I anticipated. We didn't have hardly any snags in the road. Um, we, I know when we got to a couple different locations um, to spur more participation, um, Weld Wheels came on board as a sponsor and donated uh, like 100 pair of wheels. So we actually mounted up uh, tires and wheels as a, as a um, like a loaner system um, when we got up to, into pockets of the country that, you know, people just didn't have the tires. So um, it, it worked out well. I mean, we averaged, I think, 55 cars a, a race throughout the season. And that was up, um, right? That was up considerably. Oh, it was up like 25, 30% from yeah. where it was, maybe even more. I think we were only like 30, 34, 36 cars before, and we jumped up to 55 on average. I mean, and then, you know, we, we were the founders of the, um, the Knoxville dirt late model nationals in, in Knoxville, Iowa and uh, with Cappy and, and put that event together. I think we had 90 some cars for on that a cold event October for the, the on a cold October night. It was cold. It was that very, first very year. cold. Yes, it was. <laughs> but from a competition standpoint, I mean, yeah, you had guys like guys winning races that hadn't won in a long time that you knew had talent and you knew they had the equipment. They just didn't have all the tire stuff. I mean, um, John Mason went into East Bay and, um, God, I'm trying to think of some other guys, Brady, Brady Smith, and, yeah. you know, guys that, guys that, uh, you know, would sniff some stuff every once in a while, or maybe one of the Northern extreme races, but they were right there battling with, with Berkey and Mars and, and uh, Don O'Neill and all these guys. Well, part of the reason I wanted to have you on, too, is I put on Twitter this week, I said, hey, what is one thing you'd ask Doug Bland if, if you had him on the air? And one of the questions I got was, you know, what was his long-term vision with Goodyear? Did he realize it'd be so polarizing and hurt his car counts? But like you said, it didn't actually hurt your car count. Your car count actually went up, right? Yeah, it didn't hurt, it didn't hurt the car count at all. Yeah. Um, all it did was separate the talent pool. I mean, because like I said, they, they were offering, it was so funny is we were sitting in East Bay with uh, Al Varnador, the, the promoter of East Bay, and we're sitting there and, you know, people are calling me saying, Hey, I just got offered 50 free tires. If I go, if I go to Volusia and not come to East Bay. And these are guys that were like regional racers that never got any sponsorship from Hoosier ever, but yet they were so scared of what we were doing. They were, they were offering these guys, these deals. And, and I, you know, I know. Well, I don't know personally, but I heard amount they wrote Bloomquist for the Dirty Dozen program. But like I said, for what they could have been in, involved with us just to be a part of it. But that, like I said, it just showed how much they had to lose and how much money they were making off the industry by selling so many different compounds. I've heard the stories, the rumors, the innuendo about all what happened before the start of 04. Like you said, you found out in Reno, right? And the season's two months away. It got nasty. I mean, I've heard some of the back channel stuff. 
I want you to be as honest as you can be here. Give me some of the nastiest stuff that you can tell us that happened as far as threats, conversations. Just, just, just give us some of the dirt. What is just some of the stuff that you're like, you'll never believe it, but this happened in that two to three month window. What is some of the, the stuff that you have to see to believe that happened? I mean, just they're calling up tracks. They were calling drivers. They were calling up, you know, it was like all guns blaring because they, they were so threatened. I, I think they didn't think I was going to do it. That was the thing is like, I sat them in my motorhome at the Dixie shootout and I'm like, listen, guys. This is the best way for this industry to grow. I mean, it's and if they if you think about it, that's what they try to do now. But they were so hard headed at the time. If you have a hundred cars in the pits and they're all buying six or eight tires, versus having thirty five cars in the pits and they're all, you're trying to sell thirteen of them, thirteen different compounds to them. I mean, it's just it's a simple equation that the more participants, the more people that are involved, the bigger the thing is going to become. But if you if you let a few select people kick everybody's butt because they have stuff that no one else has, it's, it's, it's going to slowly peter out. That was my philosophy on it. I, mean, I, I always hear stories about secret meetings too, right? There was a ton of secret meetings and the Dirty Dozen got together. Did, did, were you ever, did, you, did you ever have a mole, Doug? Was there somebody that could keep you informed on everything that was going on? Or would you find out as the news about the Outlaws and Boundless was released? Yeah, I mean, because I had my, my guys. You know, there was my guys that, that they were so happy that you know, that this is the way we're doing things. And they still knew all the other guys, you know, there was the whole rocket brigade, you know, it was the ones that, that left along with Scott. So, you know, the the guys who weren't the chosen ones from Hoosier in the past, they, they didn't have nothing to lose. They're like, hell, this is the best thing ever. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about spending hours upon hours upon hours of siping and grooving tires and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Our life just became a lot more simpler, and the, the play, playing field came down to who can set up their car right and who can drive the heck out of it. How disappointed were you? Were you – was it – because, listen, I recently sold my company, and, and the politics of dirt track racing, I told you, is it's insane right now. It's as political maybe as it's ever been since that 2004 time. Were you just, were you crushed? Were you like, knew you were fighting for what you thought was the right thing? Like, what was your mood? It's, it's kind of hard to explain. It, it was, so I had spent three years trying to build this industry. I started out as the agency for, for Have a Tampa, you know, and I had a race that I promoted in, in Joplin, Missouri, the track that I, I was part owner of at the time. And I saw the, I saw the opportunities because I looked at it as a, something that just was never done right, you know, and, and me coming from the NASCAR and IndyCar world through Penske, I, I knew how to sell sponsorships and I knew how to make something a little bit bigger. And I thought, Hey, I've got something here that I feel could really blossom. And I went to Eldora and I saw, I went to the world 100 and I was like, Oh my God, there's, <laughs> there's a huge base here. If, if we can get all these stars under one umbrella and really build this up almost to the NASCAR cup series of dirt racing, then this thing could really blow up. And, and that was my vision. That's what I wanted to do. But it, there were so many different people that were trying to control it. And I underestimated what the depths that Hoosier Tire would do to keep me from succeeding. You know? And at the end of the day, it came down to the point where you know, Ted, Ted Johnson pulled me aside. And, and uh, I, I was friends with Ted because I did a, a outlaw sprint car race at Joplin before I had done the um, – to have a Tampa race, he pulled me aside and he said, listen, Doug, I, I know what you're trying to do. He goes, I, I really 
admire what you're trying to do? He goes, but I've been doing this for 30 years, and I've never once seen a company come along and start buying up racing series and paying five times more than what they're worth. He goes, so if I'm you, I'm getting with Boundless, and I'm going to have them buy you. Buy you, They should buy you out. Perfect. Literal started, perfect transition. Started, yeah. Yeah, so I'm thinking to myself, well, Ted, if anybody knows what's going on, it's Ted, Ted Johnson. So I said, I appreciate it, Ted. And, you know, shortly, about halfway through the season, you know, Bobby Hartsleaf from Boundless was calling me and saying, hey, I want to fly you out to Colorado Springs. I want to talk to you about buying your company. So, you know, that's that's how it all came about. And I, I, you start thinking to yourself, am I going to beat my head against the ground, you know, trying to do what I know is right and what could really grow this thing? But maybe I'm, I'm before my time here and and they're just too hard-headed to see what, what this could actually turn into. It's amazing, and I, I dropped this note to you. You and I, you, the last time you and I spoke on the phone was literally 2004 when I talked about coming to work for you. So it's not like we talk often, but, the and I'm not going to get into them now, the parallels between Dirt on Dirt and what you were doing are, you have many of the same emotions I did about selling my company and, and just the things you were going through. It, you transitioned it perfectly, like I was going to say. You eventually decide to sell Boundless, I know you had a talk with Ted Johnson, like you said, you know, the, the Outlaw Sprint Car Series founder for people that don't know. Was it just a matter of, Doug, you know, I know what I think I'm doing is right, et cetera, et cetera, but at the end of the day, the money is just too strong. I'm 30, you're 33 or 34 at this time. I'm not going to beat my head against the wall in a, in a battle it looks like I might not be able to win eventually. Yeah, like I said, I didn't, I'd never, I underestimated the depths of what they were willing to do. You know, I mean, they were, I mean, if I had the money to sue them for what some of the stuff they they were, you know, they tortious interference of a contract. I mean, there were so many different things that they were doing that were totally illegal, but I didn't have the money to fight them. And is it worth doing that? I mean, you know, it was just, I was trying to align myself and, you know, doing the, doing the thing with the Renegade series and buying them. And I had a deal in place. One of the things you asked, you know, what, what uh, what are some of the underhanded things they did? So I had a deal in place to buy the Mars series from Mooney Star. We we agreed on the deal. It was in place. That would have given me four regional regional racing series that had Goodyear tires as well as the national tour. And when we got to Reno, he called me and he said, uh, Doug, I can't do the deal with you. I'm like, what are you talking about? We've already agreed on this deal. And he says, I'm I'm screwing you over. I'm just going to tell you I'm screwing you over because Hoosier's writing me a big fat check. <laughs> and he goes, and, I, and he goes, but I'm I want to be a man and tell you I'm screwing you over to your face. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, I really appreciate that, Mooney, but uh, you're not doing me any favors right now. But yeah, that's that was exactly. You can probably ask him and he'll tell you the same. Uh, thing. Mooney's an honest dude, so I I will have no problem asking him that question. Do you think? Do you think had all that not happened, and it's a lot for everyone to digest, that there would be now in 2020, would there be one big national tour, 20 guys following it? And granted, Lucas Oil has done an enormous amount for dirt late model racing with television and everything. But do you think we'd have one big tour, 20 guys following it? And the reason I brought up Lucas is because of the TV package, which they bring. You had, your, had you had your way, would things be as you envisioned? Would it be that one big NASCAR of dirt thing? Could it have happened? I think it could have, but there's a couple things that would have been challenging with it. I mean, granted, I just signed a $13 million title sponsorship deal with NV Pharmaceuticals in Stacker 2. So they signed on for, for 10 years. Wow. Um, obviously, with all the controversy and splitting the roster in half and, you know, half my stars going in one direction and half of them staying, 
that definitely didn't help matters any with a brand new sponsorship that you just signed for 10 years. So, um, you know, that, that hurt the relationship a little bit. Um, but I think at the end of the day, unless the purse is just what it went through the roof, um, which I think probably could have, it could have definitely grown, but you would have had to have the, the payback in the back of the field, just, you know, it'd have to be a lot bigger. And, um, there's so many guys in dirt lane model that have egos that they, they can't go all year with only winning one race or two races. So that's why they go on the, you know, the summer national tour, do these, these regional things so they can cherry pick some deals and make some money. And, you know, there's only so many that want to go on the whole tour and, and race against the best every night. Well, and that's, you know, it's, I, I read that you said that in the article with, with Kevin, that you think this thing was maybe ultimately headed towards two tours anyway, because of that, right? Like guys need to win and there's 30 guys capable of doing this on a national level or maybe 20. And there would have always been two tours, no matter what you would have done with Goodyear or anything. It maybe was always headed that direction. Just the way these guys and everything is built is that was going to happen. Yeah, it could. You never know. Like I said, you, you can't judge what the future is going to hold. But we would have had the resources behind us. We would have had. And I had to overpay for everything that that year in 2004 because I was trying to beef up the the benefits of staying on our tour. I mean, our points fund was huge. Yeah. I mean, we we just had a, a whole ton of things that we that we um, elevated from 2003 and 2002 because um, you know we had the competition going head to head against us, which would have never had to happen if if that wouldn't have, you know, it wasn't the case. Was there, not to call out anybody specifically, but I guess that's sort of what I'm doing here. Would you, do you remember any one person that just made this thing just, you're like, oh man, maybe you get along with them now, but that 2004 year, I wanted to kill fill in the blank because it was just such a pain in the ass for you that season. Well, I, I still haven't talked to Scott Bloomquist to his face since then because literally he invited me and, and my, my girlfriend at the time to his house. We talked about how we were structuring the Goodyear deal. We told them, you know, exactly how it was all laid out. At the time, Goodyear was trying to get a um, part of the deal was they were going to have an invite to the IROC series. So whoever the, the extreme champion was that year was going to get an invite wow. in 2005 to the IROC, IROC series. So in, in just going to all the four or five IROC races, I think you made like 125000 or something like guarantee. So, you know, they were, he was all on board with it. And, and like I said, until, you know, they got him. And then, you know, it, it just got, it's got crazy after that. But, you know, when somebody looks you in the eye and tells you, hey, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm all bored with you. And then, you know, somebody gets to him and changes their mind. It's, uh, you know, it was, it was disappointing. Do you, but, do you appreciate the business aspect of it all? You know, I hear people say all the time, ah, it's just business. It's just business. Or would, did this seem yeah. different? Because, you know, I think Hoosier could make the argument, man, we're protecting what's ours. And I, listen, I got a lot of friends at Hoosier. I'm not going to pretend I don't. Do you appreciate that at all, or did it feel different than that? I think it was small, small-minded thinking is what it is. It's like let's let's protect this little pond of, you know, of people and take care of a few of them, but screw over all the rest of them and and you know give them some crumbs to think that we're we're doing something for them, but yet we're only we're only helping the people at the very top. I put that you up, know, and that's that's how I perceived it. I put it out there on Twitter, you know, ask the one thing I got over and over again was that you were ahead of your time. You were ahead of your time. You're only 33 or 34 years old. And your time in dirt track racing was very short. It was not long when you really think about it. But like I said, you were the big bang theory in a way for everything that's happened now. Do you, did you feel like you were ahead of your time? And did you know at the time you were ahead of your time? I remember sitting in Indianapolis, um, for the, 
the PRI show, and we had our banquet that year of 2004. And, um, you know, the guys at Boundless didn't even want me to show up to the banquet. They're like, oh, it'll cause too much controversy. So, I, And so I, I was all dressed, getting ready to go, and, the, and they called and said, hey, we'd rather you not come. So I just sat in my room by myself, and I was thinking to myself, you know what? Piss on this. I'm not going to work my butt off and try to do things if people don't appreciate, you know, what I'm trying to do and try to help this thing grow. I'll, I'll go do something else, you know. And that I'll was take your... my check from Boundless. Yeah. I'll take my check from Boundless and I'll go do something else. And that was and that's what I did. Perfect transition again to my next question is the story that Kevin did on you was five years ago. I looked, it was 2014. He asked you, would you ever get back into dirt late model racing? And your answer, Kevin's exact quote was, uh, Bland res- responded with a resounding hell no, <laughs> was your answer. Did it just burn you too bad or just you could never do? Because you, you owned a piece of Springfield Raceway in, in Missouri for a long time up until two or three years ago. Did it just it just burned you too bad for you to really kind of come back in? Because we need visionary minds like you. It just burned you too bad, I guess. It's just um, I don't know. I don't, I don't. It's like dating the same girl you've already dated. I mean, I'm, <laughs> am I going to go back? I already know. I already know what I'm going to get there, right? <laughs> so I'll go find another girl. <laughs> do you? What do you see? Last couple of things, Doug. When you look at dirt late model racing right now, I know you don't pay a ton of attention, but you pay enough. What do you see? I mean, obviously, Forrest and, and uh, Bob Pattison are, are 100% quality people. You know, they were sponsors of mine. Um, if if I if I had the vision of, well, I don't want to say had the vision. If Forrest even said something to me one time, he's like, "If I knew that you were trying to sell, I would I would have done a deal with you." You know, and um, I just they've spent a lot of money in the industry and, and they are definitely good people. Um, Richie Lewis and the guys are very good people. I, you know, I love those guys. They all work for me. You know, they're, they're super quality people. Um, so there's a good nucleus of, of strong people in this industry that, that are doing it for the love of it, not doing it because they're getting a huge paycheck, you know? So, um, when, when people work off passion and not just for a paycheck, then that's a, that's a, a really good indication that you're, you're in, in a good pool of people, in my opinion. Do you, when I ask you kind of what you see, though, I hear every, every couple of years I hear, man, I think the bottom's going to fall out, or I think we're stronger than we've ever been. I think this, I think that. Everybody ties everything to politics, too. You know, if this guy gets elected or if that guy gets elected, we're going to be okay. How do you see us? Are we okay for the next four or five years? You're a guy that's seen ahead into the future of late moderation. You did it pretty well. What do you see? Where are we headed? You know what? I, I don't spend that much time around it, to be honest with you. I, like, my old partner from Springfield, uh, Jerry Hoffman, will say, hey, did you, did you hear who won the World 100? You know, he, he will ask me, did you see this race or did you see that race? And, uh, you know, I, I don't really pay much attention. I usually, if I'm in Florida during, my parents live in Florida, so um, they live like a half hour from, from Volusia, and, and my dad's still friends with El Varnador, so they go over to East Bay, and my dad will give me a report, hey, this is what happened to East Bay, this is what happened to Volusia, and, you know, that's about it. And I think a few years, about four years ago, I walked through the pits and, said hi to some people and you know uh now that my team's based here in the quad cities my football team uh there was a race over here uh at the uh davenport track over the summer and i, I saw Burkhofer and a couple guys <laughs> and it was good it's good to give them a hug and see how they're doing and everything but you know that's about the extent of it i don't i don't follow it enough to to give my opinion on you know the the state of the union of dirt late model racing what's one thing we're still doing wrong promotionally, anything. Give us one thing. One thing you look and you go, man, they still haven't got that. It's it's 15 years later and we're still doing it wrong. You got one for us? 
not that I can think of right offhand. I mean, <clears throat> you have to hit the masses, and you know, people are preparing the tracks right, where you don't where you don't go to the thing, and you you feel like you uh, you know you can taste every every grit of dirt in your mouth when you're leaving the racetrack. I mean, it's there's just uh, you're never going to appeal to the masses unless you you get some of that out of the way. And it's always going to be a niche, little niche business. Obviously, with now with asphalt racing and NASCAR, you know you can take your girlfriend or your wife or to the races. You don't have to worry about them coming home covered in dirt and mud, and you know having dirt in their hair and all that stuff. I mean, for it to really get huge, you're going to have to have some of that cleaned up, some of the facilities better, you know, the hospitality side of it better. Um, that's some of the things that we addressed when, when you know when I was looking at trying to entertain the sponsors in a really nice entertainment area with uh you know like a mobile suite and, and that type of thing and you know once you get more corporate corporate sponsors on board they they want to have nice things so it's a, it's kind of a catch-22 don't you think and, and set lucas aside because i'm with you the the money that Forrest has invested is unreal in racing and we all need to thank him a ton for that but set lucas aside for a second um talk about corporate money I'm with you. People say all the time, what's the next level? I've said this is the next level because of so many hindrances that dirt late model racing and dirt track racing has. I don't think it can ever achieve anything bigger than a big niche. And that, that niche can be big, but it will always be niche. Yeah. And I get, I'm, people criticize me for saying that. You need to think bigger. I think I'm thinking appropriately is the way I say it. I don't know that we can get bigger than where we are now or incrementally grow because the time, the dirt, the dust, the outdoor aspect of it, all of that. And I'm not, I'm not really wrong there, am I? We're kind of stuck in this window, albeit a good window, because of things like that. I agree, yeah. There's, there's, you're going to be limited. I guess you, I don't use the word stuck, but you're going to be limited based on, on those parameters. And I used to tell guys, because they're like, why do we want to do all this? Why, you know, we, we're the first to start bringing victory lane backdrops and, and yeah. putting, signage, putting signage in the right location so as the cars would come off the corner on, on our speed channel broadcast, you'd see all the corporate signage on there and, you know, putting victory lane hats on and, you know, all the type of stuff that we did in NASCAR that, that I, you know, was involved with. I just kind of switched it over and, and tried to clean it up a little bit. But I remember guys going, oh, I got, I got great sponsors. I said, you don't have any sponsor. You got a sugar daddy is what you have, <laughs> you know, because at the time that's all it was. It was a bunch of rich guys that wanted to watch their cars go around in circles, which I, if it wasn't for them guys, the sport never would have been there. You know, the rate that hasn't changed much. That hasn't changed much. It's still footed by yeah. certain millionaires, right? So, but, but they didn't have true sponsors. Yeah. You know, Jimmy, Jimmy Mars is probably one of the only guys that, that always did. I mean, he had Parker stores yeah. and then, then obviously he had Stacker too when, when we put our deal together and, you know, but there's, there was very few guys that had true, you know, corporate sponsors. They, they were all guys that they wanted to help out because they, they had a passion for the sport. Yeah. I say that all the they time. They weren't expecting they weren't expecting a return on their investment. They, wouldn't, they weren't using it as an advertising tool. They were using it as a stroke my ego tool. I say it all the time. If, and, and God bless them. The Ed Petroffs of the world and all those people of the world that have literally footed the bill for a lot of these things for a long time. If those guys all tomorrow decided they're going away, we're in trouble. We're, we're, in, we're in trouble because the, the advertising return is just not good enough. So, um, well, Luckily, the, the competition on the, on the track has always been phenomenal. Yeah. Yep. You know, that's one thing the sport has. I mean, you know, going to Eldora for the first time and seeing that action and, and the crowd and, 
that's what opened my eyes to it. And then, you know, obviously I had a have a Tampa race at Joplin and, you know, we had a huge crowd and, you know, I knew then I'm like, this has got potential because you're coming from the NASCAR world where, you know, a guy might make four or five passes and, and people go crazy over it where these guys are starting 16th and running through the crowd and, and are going through the, the pack and winning a race. It's like, holy cow, this is some real action on the track, you know? So I knew that the, the product itself was phenomenal from a racing platform, but you know, getting it to the masses was the, was the tough part. And we did a lot with our speed channel broadcast. I yeah. mean, when 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 I came on board and we we went from Speed Vision to Speed Channel and, and negotiated that deal with those guys, um, that's when when I was representing um, Have a Tampa when Mike Swim still owned it and you know we were, we went to Charlotte and negotiated the deal to to put 16 hour or 15 hours of live programming on uh, in 2003 before I, or 2002 before I had had bought the series um, and. It really helped us step forward. It got Lucas on board. It got Advanced Auto Parts on board, you know, and then we were able to use that, catapult that into, you know, getting the Stacker 2 money and the Goodyear money and all the other stuff that we put together through, you know, through the eyeballs that we created through the Speed Channel program. Last question for you. 2004 was the year. We talked about it a ton. Also in 2004, a young Michael Rigsby was graduating college and called Doug Bland and, <laughs> and and was interested in potentially coming to work for his series. We talked about everything from Avanti's, the Italian restaurant in Bloomington Normal, uh, to a myriad of other things. Do you remember that phone call at all? And were you thinking, like, who I is... Do. You do. You remember it. Wow. I'm, oh, yeah. I'm I do. I do. Because I remember when when your, your website came out, uh, I'm like, is that the kid who wanted to be an intern? And I'm like, he, that is him. <laughs> And then uh, I had read about you selling uh, your company to Flow, and I, you know, shot you a message the other day congratulating you on it and stuff. So, well, you know, and you know, Cody Summers came. I got him his first job in racing too, for uh, working for Bobby Dodder, one of my customers in in the NASCAR Truck Series. So we uh, we got a, a couple good promoters that came out of that the whole Central Illinois area here. So. Um, it's it's a good a good a good hotbed for guys with creative minds, I guess. Well, I you must you must have made some impression on me. I went on to start Dirt on Dirt. I feel like you changed the sport forever, and uh, I feel like Dirt on Dirt certainly had a massive impact on the sport too. So I, I just know this: the, the the history of dirt late model racing cannot be written without your name being in it. And I mean that, Doug. Like it cannot be written without your name being at the very near top of the list as far as impact. And I hope you know that. I hope you can appreciate that all these years later. Well, that's, it's nice to hear that, but um, I was trying to, you know, get something and make it bigger, and um, I knew there was something there. Like I said, the, the first time I went to Eldora and saw all those motorhomes and, and people parking a half mile away, I was like, <laughs> I think I'm at a cup race here, you know, and, and my dad had, my dad had been a, a third late model fan, and um, when I was working for Penske, he'd tell me, you wait till you see this Eldora thing, you know, and I was... <laughs> But what I was trying to do is trying to get all those premier events under under the extreme umbrella, and you know where you could go and and sell more sponsorships and get the topless 100, the world 100, and and uh, you know the north south 100. I, that's I was talking to all those promoters to try to get the UDTR the UDTR at the time extreme sanctioning for all those big events, and we would bring our television package to that, and you know similar to what what Forrest is doing now. I mean they've they basically, you know, kind of took that playbook and ran with it. 
Well, Doug, I appreciate it, man. We've, we've gone 45 minutes. I could go another hour, 45 minutes with you just discussing the history of dirt late model racing and your involvement in it. I hope, uh, I, good luck with everything in the IFL. Good luck with all the football stuff. I hope the season and everything is shaping up good. And, um, like I said, man, anytime you want to talk about dirt late model racing, you just let me know, man. I really appreciate it. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, Doug. It is friend zone time. Dustin Jarrett is on the line. DJ, you've been around this racing game for as long as anybody. You're a little bit older than me. Not afraid to say it. A little bit older than me. When I Thanks. say Doug Bland, what do you say? Stacker two. That's <laughs> like the first thing that comes to my mind. I think it's the first thing that, that would probably come to everyone's mind. Um, that was such a, I don't even know what the right word is, man. That is, that was such a maybe unique era of racing because um i mean while all of that was going on for me personally i was kind of behind the scenes on that whole nara lucas oil thing and so on my side i almost kind of saw this uh i don't want to say you know this this war this clash of the titans this stuff coming to head but you kind of saw some things happening i guess behind the scenes that uh I, I I don't know, man. I don't want to say that you predicted it, but but it did definitely make you kind of put your fingers up to your chin and say, "Hmm, that's that's an interesting move." Or like, "Why is this happening?" And and you look back now. I guess hindsight is is you know twenty twenty on a lot of things, but uh, it was he was a a very I'm not even sure if polarizing was the right word, um, but he was a he was an interesting individual to have it the helm of what he was doing at that point in time. Well, I feel like you, and first of all, I, I can't believe Goodyear wasn't your answer. Goodyear. Stacker two is, 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 is <laughs> right there with it, obviously is the title sponsorship. That was, that was lingering. That yeah. was lingering. In there. <laughs> but you, you touched on something. I feel like sometimes he's given this like notorious rap. I use the word notorious kind of right. in air quotes, but I, I view him a little differently. I think he was way ahead of his time. And I think what he was doing yeah. with TV and tires and everything, I honestly think that he was way ahead of his time. Am I right about that? No, I, I, I think that you are. And it's so funny because um, when you told me that you were going to have me on for this, I, I just, for, for some reason, I had a feeling you were going to ask me about yeah. Doug Bland. And, and uh, truth be told, that was actually one of the first things that I was thinking was that he was actually maybe a little bit ahead of his time. I mean, the Goodyear thing was, you know, obviously something that um, was ended up not being to his or really to, to anyone's benefit, if we're being completely honest. But, uh, but I think there's a lot of the ideas and, and um, innovations that he had, uh, he was uh, a little ahead, actually maybe a lot ahead of the game in, in some of those things. I mean, and, and if we're, again, it, bringing it back to this whole stack or two thing, um, other than, than like have a Tampa cigars, was that probably really the first yeah. big kind of major sponsor? And, and really, I mean, Sacker two is more of a national brand too, you know? So um, I, I kind of look at that as, as maybe, you know, one of the first big key players in, in terms of advertising or, or industry sponsorship kind of come on board to our sport. You know, you said that Goodyear wasn't, didn't, I don't think it worked out, but I don't think it was bad. Like the, here's the idea, right? I want everybody in the country to have three tire compounds. So when the national guys come in, the local guys are already on these three tire compounds and everybody it's cheaper for everybody to race. I mean, if you look at it that way, it made a lot of sense. It didn't work out, but I don't know that it was bad. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, it makes sense. I don't know. I, I, I guess I would disagree. I, I just, I don't know. They, they weren't, um, I mean, they, they weren't established. They weren't really anywhere. I mean, I, I know what they were trying to do in terms of come in and, and get everyone on that, but, uh, 
um, again, when this happened, man, it just, it, it seemed like that it was such a, almost a far fetched idea at that point in time. You look back now and think, yeah, I mean, it was, it was really far fetched. I personally feel like, but, uh, I don't know. I, I, maybe bad's a strong word, but I, I, not good. I, mean, I don't think it was good if I'm being honest. All right. And we can, we can disagree on that a little bit. I okay. think he yeah. might've tried to bite too much off, but I don't think the idea was bad, right? The idea of everybody kind of being on one tire, uh, three tire compounds across the United States. I mean, you'll have people tell you right now, like, oh, I wish everything was UMP tire rule, 20, 30, 40, right? right? Like that. So that was the idea. The direction didn't work, but I don't fault the the thought process, I guess, is what I, I'm saying. I think, yeah, I like what you're saying, and the, the maybe bit off more than he could chew, or or maybe, you know, uh, too too much too quick, you know, is, is a yeah. good way to put it. Season starting too soon. Uh, literally, I don't know that you and I have ever talked in the last two years where we don't talk about the season being too long, but I said in the open that I officially... Uh, not I, uh, we as an industry officially put the gun to the head of an offseason in our sport, and we pulled the trigger this year. Uh, it's a, just a full hit job on the body. Uh, Joe Warning uh, said to me, he said, they all run together now. Uh, there is no ending. This is this season, is next season. It's all just the same season now. Uh, I, I feel like a broken record, but but what is this? What What's happening? What, I mean, we're points, it's December 30th, and we're points racing this week in New Mexico. I... I don't know what's what's happening. Can you help me? Because <laughs> I feel like we talk about it too much, but I can't stop talking about it. I know, right? It's uh, I, I think part of it is that everyone is kind of looking for this opening. Everyone's looking for the gap. Everyone's right. looking for this hole, you know, where they can. Where can I squeeze a race in? Where can I? Um, let's be honest. Promoters are saying, where can I make an extra buck? Um, they're seeing that that some of these uh, winter races. That's it, Mitch McCarter. Uh, he is he's done great things at four eleven, man. With with these off season races, yeah. you know, with uh, with uh, the the leftover and the hangover and and the sweetheart deal and all of that. And I think folks are seeing what Mitch and some of these other folks have done. They are, um, shall we maybe even say, maybe uh, I don't want to say jealous of the success, but they. They're taking note of that success, and they're trying to jump in and say, "Hey, I could have a race at this time." Hey, you know what? It in in Georgia, uh, it's fifty five degrees, and during the day and in, in January, sure, we could have a five thousand dollar to win race in there. So I, I think promoters are um, they're jumping on this this opportunity anytime that they see a gap. Uh, and, and I, I think I said it during uh, during one of the last um, shows that we did, and in the sense that I I have to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of it myself but uh, i guess in the same sense if i'm a promoter and, and i see that opening and, and maybe an opportunity to um help pat myself on some of the nights when the crowd and the car counts aren't good i, I would probably jump on the opportunity too i suppose and the the weather everyone's lucked out right all these southeastern races that we thought could be snowing have been 60 degrees new mexico which i mean guys have literally driven through snowstorms on the way to the wild west shootout before in vado new mexico you see next week 58 62 sunny they're catching it right this year. So everyone looks really smart this year. <laughs> yeah, this right this year. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll see what happens maybe next year. But uh, yeah, I, I did check the weather. <laughs> so I checked the weather at my house the other day because it's been um, unseasonably warm here for like the last three or four days. And uh, it was it was literally it was like 59 at my house. And uh, and I checked the weather for uh, for one of these uh, off-season uh, races. And it was like 39. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is happening right now? But yeah. But these every event so far has uh, has caught it just right. I'm I'm waiting for this for this one you know this one 
you know, one-off race or, or extreme race or something where it's just like 38 and snowfall. Yeah. <laughs> and someone is like, what, what were we thinking? I'm going to leave this question open-ended, but this is how I have it noted out in my stuff here. Okay, here we go. Something happened at Gateway, right? S- something right. happened there. And I- I'm just, that's all I'm going to say. And I want to see if you pick up on my train of thought. Something happened there this year. Do you follow me what I'm saying in a way? Yeah. Yeah, I, I do. And, and, and here's, okay, so here's, here's how I feel. And I've thought about this a lot. Um, number one, I, I have been, I've been born and raised, um, lived pretty much my entire life in the mid-Ohio Valley, okay? I, I remember Freddie Carpenter when Freddie was Tyler Carpenter's age, all right? <laughs> um, I, I remember Tyler Carpenter literally running around the pits with no shirt on, <laughs> you know, when he was probably five years old turning wrenches on Freddie's car. And, and so I've, I've literally, I've known that family uh, pretty much my entire life. Um, I, I know that Tyler specifically mentions a lot, you know, man, we came from nothing, you know, we didn't have anything. Um, and, and, and there are some folks I understand that, that make it tired of hearing that. Um, but as someone that has watched them, I I've seen that. Okay. I mean, they, I have seen them man haul in there and think, man, these guys, you know, you just, you wonder how even they, they race from week to week, you know? So for him to go in and win that race at gateway is, is, is one for the little guy first and foremost, but two, we talked so much, Michael, the last several years about how this gap is widening, okay, between the national touring drivers and the regional guys. And Tyler Carpenter just put a huge mark on the board for the regional guy. Our sport's in this kind of state right now where, um, you know, we, we talk a lot about car counts and, and the big national touring series races and why did this event only have 26 cars and why did this race only get 30 cars and and um to be honest a lot of it is because these these weekend warriors and these regional guys they don't feel like that they can compete with the national stars and and hey justifiably so man it's hard to compete against guys that have three and four full-time crew members and a full-time engineer back at the shop and everything And, and you know what if you've got the resources to do that that's awesome. I, I'd be, I'd be putting every, every ounce of, of time and energy and money I had into doing that as well so that I could win. But in the same sense, it's taken a lot of this weekend warrior and regional guy out of the equation. Okay. If we're being completely honest, that sucks. I mean, that, that, there's no way about it. That sucks. But Tyler Carpenter rolls into gateway. Okay. And, and he wins this race. Yes. It's on a fifth mile racetrack. Yes. It was, uh, uh, you know, p- rough track condition. Rougher yeah, than know, hell. Like, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, again, we're, we're going to call it what it is, but the fact that he went in there and won that race, man, that was such a huge deal in, in maybe kind of getting this gap back to, to a manageable um, standpoint or something else. The guy saying, you know what, when, when, um, when the outlaws or when Lucas comes to town on, on a quarter mile racetrack, I've got a chance and they come to town on a, on a black flick, you know, old school Florence style racetrack. Yeah. I, I've got a chance to do it. That's what I've taken away. And, and I've thought about that a, a lot over the course of the last week. I just think like there was a glass ceiling. It broke through too. Like I'm paying And maybe it's because it was so close to Christmas this year, but Dave Despain is tweeting about the dome. NASCAR on NBC is giving dome results on Facebook and Twitter when they're 400,000 followers. It just, 
And there's people paying attention to this thing in December. And Dave Despain's like, this great racing inside St. Louis. Just the right people like found it this year, I feel like. And there are certain events that bump up against a, a ceiling and never break through it. I, I didn't know if Gateway had more room. I think we found out this year it had more room. It's not done growing yet. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, there there are times where, um, if we're being honest, I mean, we look at it and think, oh man, you know, when, what's going to happen tomorrow, or what's going to happen Saturday, or what's going to happen next year, and and then um, and then you're right, something happens, something like this, and all of a sudden, man, I mean, you're just uh, you're riding out of there like, you know, this is the best yeah. DM event in the world, like this is great, I can't wait for 2020, and and that's. Uh, Again, I, I I don't know. I guess it's a combination of things. I mean, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that, that that it was Tyler Carpenter that won first and foremost. I, I don't it, take nothing away from anyone else, Michael. It's a perfect I really winner. It's a perfect winner. But yeah, no, exactly. That's what I'm gonna say. I I don't I don't know that this happens. This this media buzz, this attention, this this kind of ceiling breaking, whatever. I don't know if this happens if somebody else wins. I I, I don't know. I mean, people probably disagree with me. That's how I feel. Last thing, next 30 days, right? I mean, we're 30 days away from the start of the Lucas Oil season. We've got three outlaw races in New Mexico. We've got six of the best races in Arizona, the Wild West Shootout. What are we going to learn in the next 30 days? What do we need to learn in the next 30 days? Um, it basically takes you through the first two days of Gold Miles. Just give me your next 30 days thoughts. Uh, I, I think one thing we're going to learn um, to circle back to what you mentioned earlier is, is this whole winter racing thing you know is it how's it going to work out is it going to pan out who's going to be affected by it and and when i say who that's everyone i mean that is um that series that promoters that fans that drivers um look we've we already know of at least one driver that's not following outlaws this year or at least starting the season off with them because him and his team would not be ready to go to new mexico yeah. on january 1st to head out there you know so are we going to see other drivers like that will it be the opposite uh will this thing just catch fire and then all of a sudden we see an influx of a dozen drivers at the, at the wild west shootout um do these early races have an effect then on on speed weeks maybe uh i, I think we're going to find out how all of this works together over the next 30 days. And again, it's, it's drivers, it's motors, it's series, it's sanctioning bodies. It's, it's everyone. I mean, God, God knows we all need to work together a little bit better. You know, it's just, it is so damn cutthroat right now in so many different ways that, uh, uh, it, uh, I, I just, I don't know where it can go from there. So I think we're going to find a lot about, um, working together, the series attracts promoters, uh, all of that over the course of the next 30 days. Am I, am I right? Or am I crazy? I told Doug Bland that it has literally not been this heated political behind the scenes since 2004. Like when he rocked the world <laughs> with, with what he did. Uh, so yeah, no, you're right. Uh, it's exhausting and, uh, everybody's just trying to keep their head above water right now. And what do, what do you and I always say? The off season in our sport is March and April. <laughs> that's, that's the off season no, when, when everything's raining out and there's no racing and you can catch your breath for a minute. So we're just racing to the off season right now is what we're trying to do. So yeah, can't wait for it. <laughs> yeah, I know. Me too. All right. Good job, DJ. Love you, buddy. All right. Thanks, buddy. See you soon.
Live coverage of the Wild West Shootout for us starts next week. We are not live from Vado. That is on Dirt Vision only this year for the World of Outlaws, but the Wild West Shootout will be live on DoD. We will have our highlights and coverage from Vado, uh, but only be live from the Wild West Shootout. I think I can go on a limb and say, by the way, the Wild West Shootout is Dirt on Dirt's favorite pure event to cover. The timing, the sun, the weather, the fact that we have so much leeway with the production out there, it's an unsanctioned event, all of that... It's probably our favorite event to cover as a staff, if I had to guess. So the Wild West Shootout coming up the 11th through the 19th. Six races live on DoD will follow uh, our on-demand coverage from Vado. All the cameras, all the announcers in Phoenix, the pit reports, all of it we will have. I'm excited for some of the stuff we're going to do, too. We had some new technology we busted out during Gateway that was unreal, and we'll have some of that for Arizona. Also, the Wild West Shootout live coming up on DoD. And Speed Weeks, by the way... 32 days away. I am <laughs> 32 days. How is this possible? Speed Weeks, 32 days away. It's January this year, the start in Golden. I think it's the last January start. It shifts back to mid-February in 2021. I think that is correct. But the Wild West Shootout coming up live and uh, more Rigsby Reports, a Suave's podcast, a podcast, or excuse me, a video cast before we start uh, the Arizona Wild West Shootout as well. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed Rigsby Report Episode 2. Thanks to Doug Bland and DJ Dustin Jarrett. We appreciate it. We'll see you soon. Have a happy new year, guys. (laughs) 